What's going on, people? So before I get into the show, just wanted to talk about this course that I took. Um, it's called Autonomy. This is the best course that I've probably ever taken in my life because there was just so much information in this course, a lot that I haven't even touched yet because it's just a rabbit hole of information. But um, Autonomy provided the education that I was looking for, but I didn't get in school. So Autonomy teaches people how to become self-sufficient, how to become independent, not only mentally, but financially. Um, learning skills, it teaches skills in a lot of different areas and teaches you how the world works, like how it actually works, not how we were taught it works, but the things that they left out in school, most likely on purpose. So autonomy teaches or autonomy has courses on so many different things. It has courses on farming. If you want to learn how to grow your own food, it has courses on marketing and sales. If you have a business, um, how to be an ethical salesperson, not just selling for the sake of selling, but being ethical and principled in your sales. Um, if you're not into sales, it can teach you how to be a salesperson, how to develop skills in communication. Um, there's courses on logic. There's courses on rhetoric, how to be um, a rational thinker. There's courses on philosophy, Western philosophy. If you want to get into history and learn about how the world really works, you know, some of that forbidden information that they didn't teach us in schools, like you know, on the banking system, on wars and major global events that have taken place. Were they spontaneous or were, uh, was there planning behind certain events? If you know what I mean. Um, who were the, who were the people that planned some of those events? You know, who, who were the, the, the kingmakers and the power players behind some of the most important events in world history, especially in America? Um, why is the schooling system the way it is? Was it designed to dumb us down? Who are the people who designed it that way and for what purpose? See, this is some of the information that autonomy has. If you want to go down those rabbit holes, if you're not into that, you don't have to take some of those courses with an autonomy. Um, there are courses on how to do objective research. There's courses on finance, budgeting, um, learning how to become financially independent. If you want to know how to speak knowledge, knowledgeably and comfortably with ease, if you want to be confident and clearly present your ideas, um, learn how to overcome learned helplessness and, and get past insecurities that you may have, whether in business, relationships, whatever, outgrow your fear of scarcity, meaning that sometimes you think that things aren't possible because your, your mindset is kind of limited, but you can outgrow that and realize that there's just a universe of opportunity out there that awaits you. Um, Get your needs met without violating anyone's volition. Land that job that you want to and get that raise that you deserve. There's so many things that autonomy has. Like I said, it's a university level course. I would say university times 10 times 10 times 10. Tons of information. If you love knowledge, you want to go down rabbit holes of um, history and things like that, it's there. If you want to learn marketing and sales, 
it's there. You want to develop skills um, that can help you become more independent financially and you want to get out of corporate, the corporate world. It's there. And not only that, there's a community of like-minded people just like you that are trying to do the same thing. There's people that collaborate with each other all the time that have tons of skills and are starting businesses with, with each other. So all of this is available in autonomy. I'm going to post some links to the show. I'm sorry, to the course. Um, but I would highly suggest that you check it out and I'll uh, put some free samples in um, the show description as well. On that note, let's get started. Peace. Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. Welcome back to the Den of Dissidents. Today I have special guest Steve Vaughn. Steve is the president of Monument Publishing, which is an organization that provides coaching for speech and debate for homeschoolers. Um, Steve is also a co-host with Kevin Swanson on Generations Radio. He spent 30 years in the healthcare industry as an RN. He's a Ziegler legacy certified speaker, motivational speaker, and owner of Co-Inspire, which is an organization that works with corporations to help build their management teams. Welcome to the show today, Steve. Well, thank you very much. That sounds like I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Never a dull moment. N no, not at all. And uh, six kids to boot, uh, two married, one getting married. Uh, and I catered all of their weddings so far. So I also, you know, you can throw in caterer in there too. <laughs> wow. Man, I feel like a bum. I need to, I need to do more with my life. Yeah, you, sure. yeah, it looks like you're just sitting around there. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so Steve, I um, wanted to ask you, what, what motivated you to um, get involved in the area of speech and debate or start a speech and debate program? Well, about uh, almost 19 years ago, I had a one of the parents of a student recruit me as a community judge, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go or not, but my wife said, yeah, you got to go check this out. So I went and checked it out. And by the end of that day, I was saying, I want my kids to look like these kids because they were articulate. They were well-mannered, very well-dressed. And so I sought to find a club in our area out here at Aurora and finding none after a couple of years that would, that would take us. I decided, well, I'll start my own. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a homeschool dad. I, you know, I you know, I, I know what I liked when I watched it, and so that was how I got started. I started off with, I was just going to start with my kids. We were going to be an independent club, but uh, my wife told people that I was starting a speech and debate club, so people started asking if they could join with me, and uh, started off with six that first year. Uh, the three families that were outside of our family moved out of state, presumably to get away from me. I, that's That was my assessment anyway. Then the next year, there were seven. I had nine, then 14, then 28. And then since then, it's been in the 40s to 50s of students that, uh, that I coach in my own club. And that, that was sort of how it started. And wow. I've studied and learned and uh, have, I think, become fairly proficient. I feel like I have something to offer now. I, 
I've got uh, national champions now in both of the leagues in STOA and NCFCA. Uh, my students uh, won team policy debate uh, duo uh, interpretation in STOA, and then I also got second and third in humorous, and I had some of my online students that were in finals in a number of the events, and then in NCFCA, one of my students won persuasive speaking, and another student got uh, third place in persuasive, and that student also was the top LD speaker for the national, at the national level, and then I had also several other students that were in uh, final rounds, or at least in, in the breakout rounds after after the preliminary. So things are going wow. pretty well. Oh, that's amazing. Sounds like you're raising the next generation of um, speakers and, and debaters for sure. Um, how old are the, the, um, the students that, what, what ages do they range from that you? Uh, yeah. So they, they range from 12 to 18 and depending on which league they're in that the date, uh, the cutoff date for STOA is October 1st. And I believe NCFCA is still January 1st. So if you're, 12 to 18 on those dates, then you are eligible to compete. Okay. Um, do you find that there is a, a lack of skill in the area of uh, public speaking and, and speech, not, not, only with, um, not only within the church or Christian community or just in general? Yes, I do. In fact, um, the studies are showing and statistics are showing that uh, just in speaking in general, when, and this is talking about like in the corporate boardroom, as well as professional speakers and, you know, TED Talks and those types of things. But when you wrap all of that together, somewhere around 70 to 75% of the time, when people leave, the people who are listening to the speech, when they walk out, they have no idea what the objective is. And, and with that also about 50% of the time, those who are presenting, about 50% of the time can't tell you in just a few sentences what their objective was. What is it that they were trying to convey? What did they want the audience to leave with? And that's a, that's a big problem. And that's one of the things that I also coach is to force people to make sense, to have a single you know, laser-sighted objective so that when they finish speaking and it's anywhere from you know six to ten minutes in a in a regular speech or if you're looking at debates it's anywhere from uh, 40 minutes to an hour and a half that hopefully the judge knows exactly what they're saying and why and and that is something and i see that even in sermons you know especially when you have a you know a backup elder or some other speaker coming in that just needs to fill the time uh, that you you walk away going okay so what was that all about what what was I supposed to get out of that and I think a lot of people in churches have that same issue especially when you have somebody you know the pastor's on vacation or on sabbatical of some sort and then the other the other guys get up and speak and you just go okay well at least he read some Bible verses and that that was nice uh, but what was that all about right and there's a way to train them to make sure that they make sense. And that's one of the things that I, I love doing. And it's it's becoming, you know, it's actually a successful way to do this. Right. What would you say are some some modern examples that we have today of great speakers, uh, great orators and, and people that are skilled in speech and debate, like maybe some some popular examples, not only, I guess, today, but maybe in the past? Yeah, well, uh, starting off today, 
you know, you, uh, Tucker Carlson, I, I watched him at a, uh, a TPUSA uh, talk, and I think he was also at the uh, YAF, uh, Young American uh, Young American Foundation, I think is what that is, the YAF. I, I just hear it called YAF, mm-hmm. but uh, they he is really good at that. He can, he can lead the audience. He has an objective. And even if he strays off a little bit, he, he actually gets back on track and you know what he's saying by the end of the time that he's up there speaking. Uh, Rush Limbaugh uh, from the past, he was, he was very good. He motivated people. You knew where he was going, but uh, people that maybe not know these people, Ken Davis, who is mm-hmm. a Christian comedian? He actually developed the uh, the method that I that I coach. It's called the Score Method. He's the one that came up with it. He's been using it for forty years. Um, Andy Andrews, who's a fairly popular speaker, motivational speaker, but he's also a corporate uh, coach, and uh, he he's coached you know Nike. He's he's gone in and helped out football teams, all kinds of people like that. From the past, um, I mean, there, there's hardly anyone you know that a, a good speaker like Martin Luther King who gave the I, I have a dream speech I went back and listened to that and it was it was laser focused you knew exactly what he was talking about it was an excellent speech and so there, there were a lot of really good speakers I, I mean you could even do Adolf Hitler excellent speaker didn't oh like what he said but he was a great speaker he was yeah. a great order and he drew people in he was laser focused as to what he was going for And so if you look at him for what he was doing or what he was saying, how he said it, how he motivated the people, he was a great orator, uh, which was unfortunate because people followed what he said. And Mm -hmm. uh, so those are some people that you could look to really like Andy Andrews, especially. And you can find him on online. He has a, a seven decisions talk. It's about two hours long. Very good speaker. Yeah. Um, now my channel might get taken down because you mentioned Tucker Carlson and Hitler. <laughs> yeah. In in the same context. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know, people have said that Obama was, was a good speaker as well. He was a good speaker. Um, um, yeah. I've heard that. He, he also, or he had really good speech writers and he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, because he was following the teleprompter pretty much most of the time. And, and yeah, I mean, even Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was a good speaker. Uh, now, in terms of motivation, you know, Donald Trump can motivate people everywhere he goes. He just causes excitement. As far as his style, uh, he's more on the grade school level of his, you know, the, the use of words mm-hmm. and how he presents himself. Uh, however, he does get people motivated for some yeah. reason. <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he's like a street talker. Yeah, yes, he is. Definitely not not polished in the area of speech, but um, do you think or why do you, why do you think the ter- the church doesn't teach this skill, or do you think the church should be um, teaching something like this or or promoting it, promoting speech? I think they should at least promote it. The you know, learning how to do this and do it well it takes time. It takes a lot of effort, uh, especially when you get into the area of debate. Uh, learning how to present argumentation, that's one thing, but actually knowing what you're talking about, knowing what you're saying is another. In order to debate well and to speak well, it takes time and effort. It's like anything else. You, you have to 
if anybody who is involved in something outside of that, if you're going to be a pianist, if you're going to play tennis, if you're going, you know, whatever you're going to do, if you don't put the time and the effort into it, you're not going to do it very well. People don't necessarily want to speak in public well. In fact, public speaking is one of the number one things that people would rather die than speak in public. Uh, that that's one thing. And so they don't want to. And the people who do want to, uh, they, they learn a lot of bad habits that need to be overcome. But the, I don't know if that's really the church's job. The church's job is to uh, hold families accountable, hold the, the dads accountable for raising their family. They also, uh, in James 127, talks about that true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And so they they are training the sheep to teach their kids. And so this is more of a, uh, it, since it's part of parenting, you know, this part of teaching and academics, I would say that this is more in line with what the fathers and mothers should do or that they should oversee somebody else coaching them. I don't think that this is necessarily the church's job. Right. Okay. Um, you know, some people would say, some Christians might say, well, you know, we shouldn't be confrontational and we shouldn't be arguing with um, one another. And they kind of take that kind of approach where they want to avoid conflict, if any. Um, <laughs> yes. How do, how do you respond to that? I really like what Walter Martin said. Walter Martin was the one who began the Christian Research Institute, CRI. And he was also on the, on the radio for a long time known as the Bible Answer Man. But he said, controversy for the sake of controversy is a sin. Controversy for the sake of the truth is a divine command. We have to be ready to stand up for the truth. And if we don't present the truth, and we should, we're to speak the truth in love, and, and that's, that's really the important part of it. You can speak the truth, but if you don't speak the truth in love, then that's, that's not biblical. But we need to be ready to give an answer a reason for the hope that lies within us to anyone who would ask and to do so with gentleness and respect or with, with meekness. Uh, and, and so it's the, so we're not there to argue anybody into the kingdom. And I don't know if we're really even there to put God on trial to see whether he's, you know, exists or not. You know, we're, we're not defending God. We, I mean, he defends himself pretty well. God's the judge. Right. Uh, the, the person who is asking the questions they're the defense. They're, they're the defendant. And the, the Holy Spirit is the attorney. He's the prosecutor. And we are a witness. I mean, that that's really what the deal is, is that our call is to be witnesses. And so we're the ones who are on the stand who are getting the questions from our attorney, who is the Holy Spirit. And, and so he's asking questions sometimes through the defendant. And then we give those answers. But it's the Holy Spirit who wraps everything up. It's God who convicts, and it's Jesus who saves. And right. and so that is not our job to do that. So just arguing for the sake of arguing, I don't think that's a good thing. But arguing and knowing how to give an answer for the truth is a command from God. Right. Yeah, oftentimes I find that, you know, sometimes people, even Christians, even myself, I... I get into conversations where actually a lot of times this happens when I'm outnumbered by a group of people that have a different worldview than me and they're yes. very vocal and bold about their beliefs. 
And there have been a lot of times when I've been silent just because I didn't want to rock the boat a little bit. And even when you're around your family sometimes, sometimes a lot of family members have a different worldview than you and you're sitting around that dinner table and there's something pulling at you where you want to say something, but you just, you stay quiet because you, you don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I felt like that because there there have been times when I haven't been equipped um, with what to say or how to make a convincing argument. Um, how, how do you think people can be better equipped to speak up in situations like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's really the answer is knowing how to ask great questions. One of the things that I teach is called the Socratic method of leading with questions. It's interesting that if you take a look at the four gospels, that if you count them up, now there's a lot of repeats in this, but if you count up all the questions that Jesus asked in the four gospels, it was well over 300 questions, some, somewhere in the 350, 360 range. He answered about 50 questions and about half of those are questions that he himself asked. And so we need to, so, so we know, uh, we know what our foundation is. Our foundation is Christ. It is uh, Christ and him crucified, raised again from the dead. We know that this is the truth. And that truth is our foundation. Anybody outside of that has no foundation. And so what we need to do is to learn to ask the right questions that lead them to that point where they can't stand on anything. And that's where then they turn around and say, well, then what do you believe? And I've had this happen over and over again. I was, I was at a, uh, a playground with my, one of my youngest, and there happened to be a Jewish man there. And he saw me and he goes, oh, you're that guy with all the kids. That, that's what we're known by in our, in our neighborhood. <laughs> we have six kids. Oh, you're that guy with all the kids. And why, why did you have so many? And so we started discussing things. And then he, we got into the idea of morality. And, and so I started asking him, well, where, where do you think morals come from? You know, is, so one of the first things I like to ask is, is there anything, any such thing as absolute truth? And if they say no, then I say, well, do you believe that absolutely? Okay, so is no absolute truth an absolute truth? And because that's a self-denying accusation, there's no such thing as absolute truth. You are making a truth claim that then obviously can't be true if there's no absolute truth. It's the same thing as saying that everything that I say is a lie. Well, is it true that everything that I say is a lie? So it's a logical contradiction. And so he, you know, we got into that a little bit. And then I said, well, where do our morals come from? Is it, you know, and, and he said, well, I, I think it comes from the government, you know, and, and remind you, this is a Jewish man. He said, well, I think our morals come from, you know, the laws and all of that. And I said, oh, then Hitler is okay. And he goes, what? I said, well, Hitler was the law. And he said that all Jews were less than humans. And so you could kill all the Jews. And he said, okay, well, maybe not that. And I said, well, what else, what, you know, what else do you want? And he said, well, maybe majority rule. I said, oh, okay. Well, then Hitler was okay. And he goes, what? I said, well, the majority voted him in. And so apparently they were okay with this. And so, and he said, well, maybe it's, and, and so everywhere he went, it was, well, then Hitler was okay. And finally he goes, well, what do you believe? I said, I'm glad you asked. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> and we started from the beginning. And I said that he made them, he made male and female. He made them innocent. He had the tree of, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. 
they disobeyed, that's where it all started. That's why there's problems, but God himself is the truth, and that's where we get our morals. God didn't say it to make it right. It was right, and that's why God said it. He's the one that set things up in that way. And so we started talking about this, and then I, I didn't realize there was a crowd that were, was gathering around this, and there was a, a, a lady who was sitting behind me, and she said, well, if you want to use that God crutch, I guess that's okay for you. And it's like, okay, and another, you know, here we've got another uh, arguer, another debater. And I turned and asked her, well, what do you believe? And she said she doesn't believe that there's any such thing as, you know, good and evil or, you know, right and wrong. I said, okay. And so I, I decided to cut to the chase. And I said, can you then conceive of a society where it would be okay to molest little kids? And she thought about it for a while. And I, I give her full credit for, uh, you know, being consistent. And she said, yes. And I had to go anyway. And I said, well, then your belief stinks, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> you know, if, if you can think that this is okay, then your your belief system is just rotten and rotten to the core. And I took my child and left. Wow. And and she said that with a straight face that yes, that is did. okay? Yes. Did she does she have did she have children? I think she was there with her grandkids. I think she might have been saying that just for the sake of um trying to appear like she she was right or that she really believed just for the sake of argument. Yeah. Deep down inside, yeah. I don't I, I doubt she believed that. Right. Maybe she I, did. I, I, don't know. I doubt she believed it too, but I think she was trying to see what my reaction would be to that. And and some people will do that. They will answer to the contrary of what they actually believe just to see what your reaction would be. But all of that to say is asking questions. Uh, right. and, and, you know, so in, in debate, so when we have, you know, a policy debate and the and I've got my team on the negative, the affirmative team is asking or, or passing a policy that is outside of what is allowed, outside of what the Constitution allows for the government to do. So then the question, sort of the line of questioning is that, you know, isn't it true that all of elected officials swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States? And obviously the answer is yes. And then the next question is, do you think they should keep their word? And it's like, yeah. Okay. So does the government, is the government given unlimited power to do anything that they want? And typically people will say, well, no. And you say, okay, so there are limits. Where are these limits found? Well, they're found in the constitution. They, they're found in article one, section eight, specifically correct. That that's where, that that's the limits in the articles as to what they can do. Yeah. Okay, and then anything not specifically given to the federal government in Article 1, Section 8, according to the 10th Amendment, is reserved for the individuals in the states, correct? Yes. Okay, can you show me in Article 1, Section 8, where the government is given the authority to do what you've asked them to do? So now, so, so it, it requires understanding what the role of government is. In fact, it we start with the understanding of the biblical role of all governments. Gov uh, the, the Bible sets up four governments and a government, it has a leader, they have a task and they have a tool of discipline. And so the very first government we come into contact with is our family. So our family, the, the head of the family, the head of the family is, is the father, the husband. His task is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and Jesus added, added strength. And you shall teach this to your children 
as you rise up, as you sit down, as you come in, as you go out, as you walk along the way, which means that, you know, if we're teaching them to love God with their mind, that's academics. So it is up to the families to actually teach the children. So that that's biblically what it's talking about there. So that's their task, their tool of discipline, rod of correction, which my dad took God at his heart. You know, the foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction drives it far from him. And I, I got taught that lesson a number of times because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. The, the next one is business. So we've got business owners. Their task is to provide goods and services. And sometimes it's to provide other families with jobs so that they can, you know, that they can have an income. Their tool of discipline is they can hire and they can fire. So if you get out of line, they can fire you. The next one is the church. The, the leaders of the church or the elders, their task is to hold the families accountable to, uh, to train up the sheep so that they can train their kids to take care of widows and orphans. Their tool of discipline is Matthew 18, uh, church discipline. And when people think of church discipline, they're usually thinking of, well, we can get rid of all the people we don't like. But that's not what church discipline is about. Most people have been involved in a, like a, a team sport of some sort. A well-disciplined team can beat another team that has more skill if they're not disciplined. We saw that in, you know, the, the, uh, uh, we had, we had the dream team of for basketball in the Olympics when it was Michael Jordan and, and those, and nobody could touch them, but you, you ended up a few Olympics later with Carmelo Anthony and, um, Allen Ivers. And they didn't, they didn't even get a medal because they all thought they were the team. They didn't play together. So right. you can end up defeating and, and then miracle on ice. Okay. So you've got, college kids against the Russian professionals and we beat them because we were more skillful. So the, so discipline, if we had a church that was well disciplined and the, and the team, the fathers were doing what they were supposed to be doing, we would have a strong church. That's problem. That's why we don't have a strong church. The next one is civil government, elected leaders uh, and appointed leaders. Their job is to protect the rights of their citizens. And that's, that's all. That's their entire job, protect the rights of their citizens. Their tool of discipline is the sword. They're the ones who are able to actually execute people for violation of rights to the extent that that, that, that person's life is forfeit. And that comes from the Bible. If you take man's life by man, your life shall be taken. That was in Genesis chapter 9. The fifth one that I haven't brought up, and I didn't even say there was a fifth one. The fifth one is the jurisdiction of Satan. Lucifer is the head of that. His job is to steal, kill, and destroy. His tools are anything that God allows. Satan comes into play when there is dissension within a jurisdiction or between jurisdictions. And one of the things I like to ask all of my students is, do you know families that never discipline their kids? And they all smile and they can think of the family like right off. And I said, they're a lot of fun to be around, aren't they? And I said, no, not at all. And I said, that's mm -hmm. because their family is being destroyed from within for not following what God said. Same with a business. If you have employees who are against you and you don't take care of that, your business is going to die. Uh, same with the church. If the church is not disciplining its flock, the church is going to be destroyed. But it also happens if you cross jurisdictional lines. And one of the things I like to ask the kids, especially, you know, these are all homeschool kids. And I said, let's suppose, and I said, I know that this would never happen, but let's suppose that the government decided to take over all of education and that they have public schools dotted all over the fruited plain. That's not their job. Their job is not to educate our kids. What should we expect to see in public schools on a regular basis? Stealing, killing, and destruction. 
And what is it that we see on a daily basis? Stealing, killing, and destruction in the public schools because it's not their jurisdiction. God set it up this way. There's no way around it. You can't change it. You send your kids to public school. You can expect stealing, killing, and destruction because that's the job of the parents. So, wow. Okay. Wow. So that's where it begins. If you understand that, now you can start the debate. Then you can, okay, whose jurisdiction is this? Hmm. What authority, What who gave you the authority to do what you're trying to do? Wow. And, that, and that's where the debate starts. Yeah, it's such a simple but profound question. Um, you know, a lot of times when I get into conversations with, with people that have a different worldview than me, I find that when they start, when you start questioning them, and they're put in a position where they have to defend what they believe. It, it starts to break down and it doesn't make sense a lot of times. And sometimes when I look at people's reaction to what they're saying, it, it seems as if they start, they're starting to realize that what they're saying doesn't make sense either. But they yeah. still go along with trying to defend it. And so, you know, like I had a conversation about abortion with, with, with somebody and... Um, very simple, you know, because it, um, there were MSNBC was talking about the ban on abortion in certain states, and so I just asked the person, you know, plainly, do, do you think that um, people should be allowed to kill innocent people? And you know, just a simple question. And then this person just kept defending it, kept defending it, and then I brought it down to, a, I compared it to slavery. I said, well, you know, what you're doing is you're defining or redefining what a human being is. How is that any different from what the slave master was doing? Because, you know, I was talking to a relative and my relative is black. And so I'll try to talk to them on, <laughs> on a certain level. So I brought up the example right. of slavery. I said, how is that any different from a slave master redefining that slave or that human being as a slave or trying to redefine that person as subhuman? And, you know, couldn't really make a defense. But yeah, people try to they try to defend their position regardless, even if it, it sounds absurd. Just And I think that's because of ego, maybe, and pride. Oh, yeah. Yes, very much. Yeah. It is hard for people to admit that they're wrong. And the older that they are, the harder it is. And mm. that's, that's why, you know, that's why you will see most, you know, Christian conversions at a younger age. And you rarely see it after they're 50 or 60 years old, because what they have to then admit that something that I have believed in for the past 60 years, I now have to admit that I'm wrong. And that is hard to, that's really hard to swallow is to, you know, everything, everything that I've taught, you know, everything that I believe is now <laughs> thrown into confusion. Uh, it, if you take a look at you know, Paul on the road to Damascus, actually, it was Saul at that time. And he thought that he was God's champion because he was trying to squash the way that he'd been taught all of his life, which was the law. And he found out that he not only was not God's champion, he was God's biggest enemy at that point. And so I, I've tried to get into his head for those three days that he was at the... the uh, uh, Ananias house on straight street. And, you know, what did he know? And, you know, what did he have to deal with? Okay. So the, the one that he thought was the witch doctor, the one who was the biggest liar, he found to be the Lord, 
and you know and that's you know when when you know the the when he saw the vision that the person in the the bright light brighter than the noonday sun he knew that any light brighter than the noonday sun had to be originating from god and there's this person in the light well god's a spirit i mean how could it be that there's a person stuck in the light that i know is god and that's why he falls on his face and and he's and he hears this you know saul saul why do you persecute me and that's why that's why the question who are you lord i i know you're god but but who are you and he didn't say i'm god he didn't say i'm the messiah he said i am jesus the one whom you're persecuting and and i think paul's mind was just blown to atoms he has now got to admit that everything that he's done was wrong that he's tried to bring christians to the point of denying Jesus, tying them to a central pillar in the in the synagogue and beating them, trying to get them to say curse, you know, curse Jesus. And they just keep saying he is Lord, he is Lord, sometimes to their dying breath, he's Lord. Now he's realized that that's who he is, that yeah. Jesus is Lord. And he's got to come to grips with that. He has got to admit that he's wrong. And the older we get, the harder it is for us to admit that we're wrong. But if you can lead them in a Socratic method, just as what you're saying, that make them defend it, make them defend it. There are people who can admit ultimately that they are wrong, and but it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict them. So somebody waters, we, you know, somebody plants, we might water, but the Holy Spirit's the one who gives the increase. That's the Holy Spirit wrapping everything up. You may be the last witness. You might be that star witness on the stand. That's the last one. And you see what everybody else has been doing and you get to watch as the holy spirit opens their eyes they become alive and they admit i've been wrong all my life what must i do to be saved and and then you get to say confess mm -hmm. that jesus is lord believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead and right. you know that that is the path to salvation yeah i think that touches on romans when um some people they keep suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and they suppress yes. it so much. Eventually you get to that point where, you know, God gives you over to a, to yeah. a reprobate mind. And, <laughs> yeah. and now you're just at the point where you're defending foolishness and you don't even yes. make sense anymore. Yeah. You know? And that, that's one of the things that I do when I train in cross-examination. Um, I'm, I teach that this is like hunting a, you know, like a large animal, like a, a mammoth. So, you, uh, and all you have is a stick. Okay. You've got a pointed stick. You're not going to rush at the mammoth full on in their view because they'll crush you. You need to sneak around behind them and maybe use your stick to make some noise because you're going to try to lead them into the trap that you've set. Now they may run off to a different direction, but you know the area well enough that as they run in a different direction, you're going, okay, well, there's a cliff over there. I'll just drive him toward the cliff. And, you know, still same results. They're, they're going to end up trapped. And that's what we need to do. So they may, you, you may end up having people go, oh, I know where you're taking me. I don't want to go there. And then they will go off in a di different direction. It's like, okay, I I'm happy to let you go this direction too. And you just keep asking the questions and you're either going to get uh, what would be called a happy admission that they're wrong and that, that and they they end up going back to the trap you've set or they end up making a totally absurd foolish comment that they can never that they cannot defend and and so it might be like with the government 
um, well, yeah, I think the government can do anything that they want to do. And it's like, oh, really? So just to be clear here, you're saying that the government has the, the authority and the ability to do anything, everything that they want to do, you're okay with that. And it's like, yeah, okay, so you know, what, what country do we live in? <laughs> so, so there's no limits. If they want to take everything that you have, uh, kill you, kill your family, that's okay. So, so make them defend the absurd. It's like, well, I don't, I didn't mean everything. I, they can't do anything. Oh, so there are limits. Yeah. Mm. And where are those limits found? Wouldn't that be like article one, section eight. <laughs> and doesn't it also say anything not specifically given to them is reserved for the individuals in the States. So there are limits. And so, so now I'm bringing them back around to the trap. Okay. So where is it in there that says that the government has this, has this authority? Well, it's general, you know, it's you know, general welfare. Oh, so as long as they utter those magic words, general welfare, the government can do anything that they want. So unlimited power, as long as they say the words general welfare. Well, they don't have <laughs> unlimited power. Oh, okay. So the, they are limited. Where are these limits? <laughs> okay. So, so it just keeps taking right. them back to that, to right. where they finally have to admit that Article 1, Section 8 is the limit on the government and anything not given to them specifically is reserved for the states and the individuals. Uh, under amendment right right it's it's really a battle of the minds you know yes it is um would you say that even the scripture um teaches maybe debate and speech or i mean not explicitly but like would you say that maybe the scripture hints at that i know um i think timothy talks about you know studying and showing yourself approved um how how would you respond to that yeah um it in in a policy debate, there are essential, and this is sorry for the roundabout answer, but in policy debate, there are two main structures that we will go to, especially for the novice teams. There's what's called the harm solvency case, where they present something that's going on in the system. They, they diagnose the problem correctly and say, this is why this is happening. And then their plan will seek to solve that harm. And so that so we're seeing uh, inflation and the cause of that is, you know, the putting too much money into the system. Here's our solvency. You know, here's the plan to stop printing money, you know, and to you know, rein in. You know, so these types of things in the South is going to solve. So this harm solvency. There's also one called the comparative advantage case. Now, you're saying that things as they are are not horrible, but they could be so much better. So in, in terms of that, you know, the, one of the easiest things would be like your health. Okay, so I'm in fairly good shape. I play volleyball, you know, five to six hours on a Sunday with my son. I'm the old, I'm the, I could be the dad of everybody out there. I'm so old, but I, I get through it and I'm, I do okay. However, you know, if I ate a little bit better, if I exercised a little bit more during the week and I went on to this, you know, health improvement plan, yeah, in, a, in about a year or so, I could be in really good health and I could do this on a daily basis. And so it would be so much better. So uh, so now is good. Things could be so much better. Okay, so the harm solvency case, something's happened. There's a root cause of the problem. Here's the solution. Here's how it solves. Here's all the things you'll get from that. That's the book of Romans. By one man, sin entered into the world. But by one man who died for that sin, you can be saved. So blessed are, you know, um, how, let's see, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, that that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word 
of God. And so Romans gives you the harm. Here's the root cause. You know, here's all the symptoms that, you know, I, I try to do what I want to do, but I realize, I, you know, oh, what a wretched man that I am who will save me from this horrible life. Blessed be our God and Father who has given us the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. So harms, solvency case. Comparative advantage, we hear the terms better, better. It's better. We, it was good, but now it's better. So much better. That's the book of Hebrews. The entire book of Hebrews is a comparative advantage debate case. We had at one time, God spoke to us through angels and he spoke to us through prophets, but now he's speaking to us through the sun. At one time, we had the blood of bulls and goats, but we knew that the blood of bulls and goats could, could never take away the sin. So we have a better sacrifice, who is Christ, who could take away. He died once for all, once for all time, for all of our sins, for the sins of the chosen. We had a priesthood that was a Levitical priesthood, but we have the better priesthood, the, the one that was given to Jesus under the order of Melchizedek, and he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the only priest is so much better. We used to have this covenant that was okay. I mean, it was a good covenant, but now we have the new covenant that's so much better. Okay, so that's so those two books, Romans and Hebrews, are a debate case. That mm. is argumentation. Paul was an excellent debater. He went to Mars Hill. You take a look at Acts uh, chapter, what was it, 17, where he was at Mars Hill. And he said, I see that all of you are very religious people. And in fact, you have this idol to the unknown God. Now, he didn't say, let me tell you what this idol's name is. He said, but none of these are God. God is not served by man. He's, he doesn't exist in temples. Let me tell you who the real God is. And so he was using their culture to, as a springboard into what a biblical truth was. And so that was, he argues all the time. You look through all of his books, he's presenting argumentation as to here's why you should believe. And, and then he, in Ephesians, and I think in Colossians, he says, and for those of you who do, you need to know exactly what you have. You have no idea what you have with Christ in you, uh, the, the hope of glory, the peace that passes understanding, the love that passes all knowledge. Try mm. to get that in your head, that this is who you are. This is what you have. And so he's trying to convince them through argumentation that live, you know, dare to believe your beliefs. That's, that's one of the things I like to tell all my students, dare to believe your beliefs. You believe that that God has saved you, that, that the power that he's put in you is the same power. It says this in Ephesians. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So what's your potential? You've got the power in you that brought Jesus back to life from the dead. So is there anything too hard for the Lord? It is him who is in us, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So whatever God calls you to do, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Is there anything that we can't do if God is for us? If, I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? Absolutely. You know, so just on and on. Those are all arguments that Paul was making. And so, right. yes, debate is not just hinted at in the Bible. It's commanded in the Bible that we be ready to give an answer. And the only way that we can do that is to understand what the answer is. And the way we understand the answer is to get that word in us by getting into the word. Yeah. Amazing. Well said, man. I, I got a word today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so where do you think the loss of speaking and debating skills 
or when do you think it started to take place or when do you when do you think you personally saw a decline in speaking and debating skills and what can you attribute that attribute that to i think that we got too comfortable uh, when when you get complacent and you become what i would call a flabby christian uh, things were going too well and and so when things are going well then you stop working at certain things and you know if if money has come easily and you have a lot of money then you're not going to spend usually a lot of time trying to make money because you don't think it'll ever get lost it's the same way with the church that back in the you know when you're looking in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s at least people were respectful of the christian faith and so things were easy and we, we didn't have to, you know, every, it seemed like everybody believed in God. I mean, you, you had 90 some percent of the people who would say, yeah, I believe that God exists. You had a high percentage of people who were at least trying to live a biblical lifestyle. But that's changed. Uh, when, we, when things changed in the 60s and we ended up with the, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll culture. And then we ended up with the me generation. And then we, you know, so just on and on. It was all about if it feels good, do it. Uh, with that, the church didn't know what to do. It, it was, okay, so how do we handle this? Well, we, you know, everything has been okay. Maybe it'll go back. And so I, I lay the blame at the first two, you know, basically the first two jurisdictions, the family and the church, that the church got complacent. I mean, who is supposed to be providing for widows and orphans? That's the church. Who's providing for widows and orphans now? The government. Okay, the church was willingly giving over authority that they should have had to something else because it's hard. It, I mean, it's hard to take care of widows and orphans. It's hard to do these things, and so they decided not to do the things that were hard. I think also the destruction of manhood. That yeah, and, and you'll probably get knocked off. You'll you'll lose your channel again for this one. But um, it's a badge of honor. Okay. Christianity is masculine. Okay. It, it is a masculine, and I don't, I don't want to say religion, but Christian is masculine. God said to identify him as father. He has, we've got the father and the son. This is masculine. God gave to man the authority over the household. Okay. And that was from, and, and this you know, this started falling apart from the beginning. Okay. So uh, let me give you another really quick story. I love telling stories, by the way, in case you can't tell. No problem. But when <laughs> in the beginning, okay. So when God gave the authority to Adam to name the animals. And so when you are naming something, you're taking authority over that something. So when my wife and I had our kids, we named our kids we have the authority over them. When we got a dog, we named our dog because we're taking authority over that animal. And so when Adam was given that authority at the very beginning to name the animals as to what they are, he was taking dominion over the animals. Then when you call something, you're acknowledging it for what it already is. And so it says that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. He was calling upon the character of God to fulfill the promise that God had made. Okay. So he was, I'm acknowledging that you're the one who has to do this. So Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. So when you call something, you're saying, this is what it is. So when Adam 
didn't find a mate for himself. You know, he saw male and female. It's just him. And so God, you know, an, uh, you know, applied the first anesthetic, put him to sleep, took, you know, first surgery, took out a rib, made woman. And when woman showed up, so Adam's name in the Hebrew language is Ish. And Ish means self, uh, and, and, you know, person. And he looked around, there was no other Ish. And then he took, God took the rib, created this woman, and woman is ish ah, you know, ish ah. It's another ish, mm. but ah, you know, it's woman. Right. Okay, and he said, now this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called ish ah. Okay, he's acknowledging her for who she is. After the fall, the very first thing, so God said to, to ish ah, your desire will be for your husband. And that and the desire was the same word that God used of Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. It wants to rule over you. And so after the fall, he said to Esha, your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he will, he will take that authority. He will rule over you. The very next thing that Adam did, Ish did, was he named her, Eve. He named her mother. He named her by a function. And mm. so all of a sudden, Isha, I call you Isha. I am now naming you because I'm taking the authority over you and I'm going to name you by your function, which is to be a mom. Okay. Wow. No longer side by side. That's where it really started. That's why, you know, if, if there's ever any couple that comes to me and says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble. It's like, well, marital trouble, right? And I said, how'd you guess? Well, you're married. <laughs> yeah, all troubles are marital problems Fair. when you're married. Okay, so it, it sort of began there, but it just got worse and worse and worse. And so as masculinity has been emasculated, and we've taken that away, we've tried to feminize men, and the church has let it happen. The church, you know, you, even the songs, the songs that we sing in church, you know, I want to fall in love with God. No, no, mm. that's not what we're called to do. That that is an American type of thing. You know, we don't fall in love with Jesus. He's not the boyfriend. You know, that what's interesting is that there was a person. Uh, sorry, I get worked up over this. Yeah, there was a person who asked Chat GPT to write a modern Christian worship tune that also identifies Jesus as your boyfriend. And it was like the same things that we hear in church every day. Yeah. We need men need to have battle songs that we, we are in a battle right now. And it is incumbent upon the men to storm the gates of hell because Jesus said, you know, uh, and I like to, you know, you remember Jesus, right? Okay. So Jesus (laughs) said to Peter when, when he said, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon. And the word Simon, by the way, means shifting sand, easily blown about by the wind. You are now Peter, which means a chip of rock, not easily blown about by the wind. And on this boulder that you just spoke, I will build my church. And what he said is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On that, Jesus was going to build his church. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, well, most of the time when we hear that, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail, we're hearing that you know God's always going to have a remnant. He's always going to have an army that will will defeat defeat Satan. Well, gates are not an offensive weapon. 
You, you don't see armies grabbing the gates of the city and rushing the rushing the front lines. Ah, oh, we got the gates. And everybody's going, mm -hmm. no, no, they've got the gates. No, gates are defensive. Gates are defensive. Right. We are to be storming the gates of hell because they will not prevail against us. But we're 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 teaching complacency. You know, just mm. let it let it be, let it go. You know, let's fall in love with Jesus. You know, he's he's our our friend. You know, God's the 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 man upstairs. He's our friend next door. No, God is the commander of His armies, right. and He wants us to fight. Now, it's it, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities. It's against the philosophies. It's against the ideas and the zeitgeist of the age. Right. We need to take the battle to them. And do so in love. We speak the truth in love. So we're back around to the very beginning. So we learn to speak the truth in love. We learn to ask questions. And we're always ready to give an answer when they ask, well, you know, everything's falling apart. How do you still have hope? Well, let me tell you how. Yeah, let, let me talk to you about Jesus. Right. Okay. That's where it all begins. Okay. So a, a way roundabout circle over this last 50 minutes plus. But that's how. Things have gotten out of hand, how people are weak. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it because they don't study the word. God right. gave us his word so we could know who he is. Right. And if you're not reading the word, you don't know who God is. Yeah. I always, you know, as I um, read more scripture and learn more about the faith and Christianity, I you know, come to the conclusion that it's not a lazy man's religion. <laughs> no, you know? it's not. Um, but, you know, oftentimes growing up, my, my father was in a nation of Islam and um, I I listened to a lot of hip hop growing up. And I, I there was times when I was surrounded by um, or I would come into contact with guys who call themselves Hebrew Israelites and five percenters, uh -huh. nation of Islam guys. And they were very, very yeah. intellectual but they always had this perception of Christianity being for weak men or non-intellectual. And, and they just, you know, constantly criticize the church and Christianity. And so I, I think that one issue that I've always seen is that, you know, a lot of Christians, Christian men, or just in the church, they, they don't always defend their faith or aren't willing to take on those battles as, as you're talking about. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that men have played a responsibility in allowing for the feminization or the, the emasculation of men? Yes. I lay it mostly at their feet. Yeah. It's they, because they have, it, it's, and that goes back to Adam too. I mean, when, when it, you, if you read this really closely, you know, when Eve, when Esha first took the fruit and she tasted it, I mean, it was, you know, good for the eyes, good for the, and she was hungry, you know, and it would make her wise. Okay. So she took the fruit and ate it and then gave some to her husband who was with her. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's standing there with her as she's reaching for the fruit. She's grabbing it. She's putting it up to her mouth. He should have stepped right in there and said, stop. No, this God said, do not eat of this fruit. Okay. So he was there and she gave some to him who was with her. He had already started to abdicate, abdicate his responsibility. And that's what men have been doing, you know, and, and then when the women try to rise up and take over, then they you know, beat them down as much as they can. No, no, you're, you're Eve, you're Eve. I'm, I'm naming you. Okay. I'm, I'm not calling you. I'm naming you. And so that's where it began. And so men's, 
men's abdicating their responsibility comes from sin. And, and so if you don't know who you are in Christ, then, and, and so men like to, you know, they'll sit by and watch. This happened to me. I was, I was in that boat. Okay. So when my wife wanted more for our kids, my kids knew more Bible than their Sunday school teachers. And I, I remember one of the Sunday school teachers coming up to us and saying, you know, you, you know, we're going to have to have, you know, Ashley not speak up as much in class because I asked, you know, does anybody know about David? And she raised her hand and she like told, she took over the whole class for the next 45 minutes, talked about David. And, you know, I didn't get anything else in. And so, you know, we, we need to be able to teach people more. And, uh, and so my kids knew more, but my wife said, we've got to do more. We, we need, you know, I'm not satisfied. And so she came to me and she said, do you mind if I you know, read the Bible to the kids every morning? I said, no. And so I'm, I'm thinking in my man, you know, my weak manhood, check that box off. Okay, so my, my kids are getting Bible read to them every day. And my wife's doing it. So what? My wife's doing it. No, but no, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. And so she came to me later and she said, uh, you know, we, we've got some questions. Okay, men love solving problems, by the way. So this right. is a great way. Wives, you want to control your men? You want your men to take over? Here's how you do it. Because my wife did it. <laughs> she came and said, you know, there's, there's some passages that we're not quite understanding. Um, would you mind coming to our Bible reading tomorrow morning? And if we have some questions, we could ask you. I said, okay, no problem. You know, I, I know my Bible. I've, you know, I've read through it several times. And so I, I teach it in Sunday school, so I know it. And they came to a passage and, and my wife was going, well, so what, what do you think this means? It's like, well, this is, easy. you know, in my head, I'm going, this is ridiculous. This is easy. And so I started to expound upon what it meant. And she said, would you mind coming back tomorrow in case we have some problems? And it's like, no, obviously they need help. And so I'm showing up now a couple days in a row. And then she goes, would you mind just reading, uh, reading the scripture for us this time? Mm -hmm. I went, no, I guess, you know, that'd be fine. I picked up the Bible and I started to read. And that's when the Holy Spirit, like, pierced me through the heart and said, this is your job. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't give up from that point on. It, it, yeah. And that is what men need to do. They need to take that leadership. Women, if your men are not doing that, don't gripe and complain. That, that will not help. Men love to solve problems. Present it to them as a problem. Can you help us? Men love that. Most of the time when our wives come and present us a problem, they don't want a solution. They just want to be heard, okay? They're actually asking you to help solve. You're going to go in and help solve the problem. So wives, take that, use that for your benefit. Go to your husbands. Can you help us out here? And they'll, they'll love to help you. And then all right. the, hopefully the Holy Spirit will then convict them as he did me. Yeah, definitely. You know, earlier when you mentioned um, the uh, previous generations believing in God or like a higher percentage being more more moral or ethical, um, I, didn't, I didn't live during that time. But n now when I look at the times and I look at the leader, the leaders that we have, you know, I'm asking myself, I, there's a video of um, President Joe Biden talking to Dylan Mulvaney. I made a video of it. And he's <laughs> talking to Dylan Mulvaney. And Dil Dylan Mulvaney is a young man. And he's telling this young man that it's okay to be a woman. And it's okay to transition, you know, and, and, and 
feminize yourself and whatever if you want to get different body parts and all that. This is an yeah. older man telling a younger man this. Yeah. And and I'm seeing men in our culture support this or vote for this. Yeah. And I'm asking myself, how did we go <laughs> from that, from what you talked about earlier, to this? Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, so it's, crazy. Yes, it is. It's the classic, you know, frog in the pot of water. And, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. And, and uh, you know, this, you know, this came about from what we would call the greatest. Now, almost everybody would say this is, the, you know, the greatest generation was the World War II generation. They went and they fought and they died for our freedom. And, you know, so they would be like, they would say that that's the greatest generation. Um, I would disagree with that. I think the greatest generation were their parents who brought them up to fight and die for the freedom of this country. And so it's, it's the parents. And then when these men came home, they, they saw some horrific things and they came home and they became the silent generation. They didn't want to speak about the things that they had experienced because they were trying to protect their family, but they needed to speak. And when they didn't, that passed on to the next generation that we we don't speak we don't air any of our difficulties we you know so men learned silence from their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and that we can we can hold it in ourselves and and that then began the lack of speaking lack of taking that authority uh, we we gained our freedom and we, we learned the art of war so that we could give to our kids a, a, some sort of peace. Well, we learned peace so that we could give our kids the idea of being able to learn mathematics and science. And we learned mathematics and science so that we could train our kids to love the arts and love music. And then they became soft. And we're going to, this generation is going to have to learn war again so they can give their kids the ability to have peace uh, without war. And so it's a cycle that's wow. been going on for a long time. And we are in the place of where we've become, you know, fat, happy, and lazy, especially in spiritual things, when we should be training our children in the art of war. That's one of the things that I tell the kids that I coach in, not only in my club, but I've got kids all over the country online that I coach in speech and debate. And one of the things that I even put on, you know, when I put out the, the newsletter that I put out on a, uh, on Mondays to all the members, I say, if you want to be involved in private coaching with me, I want you to understand what my philosophy is. I will not just teach them how to speak and debate well. I am going to raise them up as warriors for Christ because they're going to need that. They're going to, this is a tool. These are weapons. And part of the weapons of our warfare is understanding the sword of the spirit the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel on our feet. I will be infusing that within all of my coaching so that they can learn to use these tools to expand the ground that God has given to them. We need to start taking back the land. And, and that is how we can do that. We, we don't know when Jesus is coming again. We know that he is. We know the end. And we've won. Okay. So we, we already know that We've won. Uh, that's why Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world. 
And so, you know, what can man do to us? We have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. So we are dead people, but we're living not by ourselves, but because of the faith of Christ in us. And so he is, he is our life. And if we're already once dead and made alive, I mean, how can somebody kill us? I mean, we, we are, you know, so if we die, yeah, we die. But that's a great retirement program. That means our work's done. We got to go home. Okay. If they let us live, then we win. Then we can keep pressing on and preaching the gospel and telling the truth of who Christ is. So either way, we've won. So the perfect love casts out all fear. There is no need to fear. And I, I like what Kevin Swanson says. Life is too short to be vague. And so here's what we need to do. And here's what I'm training these kids to be. And so I'm, you know, just little by little, I, you know, hopefully I'm tr training the generals right now and they will turn around and train up the, the captains and the, and the corporals and the lieutenants and, and, you know, all of them. And so that we will be building, I'm building an army as I'm coaching speech and debate, I'm building the army of the Lord. Wow. That's amazing, man. Re really inspiring. God bless you. Um, where can people find your your work and resources if they want to learn or if they want to train their children on uh, how to become better speakers and better debaters? Yeah, and, and you don't have to belong to a league. I mean, you can right. you can jump on. I'll train whoever wants to be trained. And so, if you go to monumentpublishing.com, uh, you will find you know my phone number and, and you know, I've got my cell phone number online. I mean, so if you want to text me, you can write this down. My phone number is 720-280-4511. 720-280-4511. I ask that you text me because I, you never know when I'm doing something like this, I can't answer the phone. Or if I'm in the middle of a coaching call, I can't answer the phone. But if you text me, then I can text you back and we can set up a phone call or a Zoom call or anything like that. Okay. Um, I can train up your kids, but, and then for businesses, you can go to, uh, co dash inspire coinspire.biz. And that's my website. If you're wanting me to help with your business, um, I can come in and, you know, so you don't build a business, you build the people and the people build their business. And so that's, you know, and there's a whole separate thing on that, you know, that that's a whole different show is to talk about how to build up businesses, but, I believe that God has created us to be successful. We've been given the seeds of, uh, of success. We've been endowed with the ability to succeed. God called us to do certain works. And so he didn't call us to walk in those works in order for us to fail. He's called us to succeed in the works he's called us to do. So how do we find out what those works are? That was, that's another program that I have. How do we know what God's called us to do? And that's about 15 weeks, you know, 12 to 15 weeks. I can, I can show you. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I think, you know, we need just an overall reformation of the culture, which eventually trickles down into other areas of our society. So I think we yeah. just need to get back to basics, really. Start with the family, get the, yeah. get the dads and the, the moms and dads training up their kids. And then that will change the culture of business. And the families also will change the culture of the church. If the, if the families are going there saying, this is what we expect. We want you to train us how to raise our kids in a biblical way. We want to be a biblical family. And if the church isn't willing to do that, find another church that will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you for your time. Um, thanks for your, your message as well. Um, 
and we'll definitely be in touch and hope to uh, keep this conversation going. Oh yeah. Uh, it was my pleasure. I'd love to, you know, let me know. I'll come back on anytime unless of course you lose your channel because of me, <laughs> then, then sorry. <laughs> I'll build another one. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for your time. You're welcome.